Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey guys and gals, it's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. Really excited to speak to my new friend, actually, Fred Hubler. Uh, and we're in this similar men's group together called Go Abundance. And Fred's an interesting guy because he works with uh, insanely wealthy accredited investors. And we'll talk about accredited investors and what that means. Uh, Fred does retainer-based stuff. He also likes to smoke cigars. He's also a car guy. So when, when I read his bio and then we kind of got introduced through the universe, I was like, oh, well, I got to talk to this guy because I like talking to people that deal with with money. Uh, there's a lot going on. We're coming to you in October of 2021. There's a lot going on with the economy and the government and spending and where should we invest and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Fred, let's just dive right in, man. Like, t- Tell us what you do for a living and who you help. So we, um, I, I started uh, two years at a brokerage company that we all would know the name for. And I realized that was just a sales guy. Want to buy a bond, want to buy a bond. And my dad was one of my first clients. I had all the money in, in the world for him. He gave to me. And I'm looking at what was printed the night before from this brokerage firm, and it was my dad's name, and it was Merck as a stock, and it had, you know, sell these people this thing. So I called up the the investment office. I'm like, how do you know this is right for my dad? Like, we just searched for who had cash, and this is the stock of the week. Like, how's that? And and how's that investment manager? It's like, dude, this we're we're a brokerage. You just have to sell stock. So that began my. uh, I grew always grew up the west with the um with the X Files. That began my trust, but verify and trust nobody mentality. And my first day was 9-11. So I knew something was up when during 9-11, you would call the annuity guy and their answer was, well, you have to sell an annuity. You call the investment guy, oh, well, that's dollar cost average, best time in the world. And, and that was not the right answer for me. So when I went independent, I'm in literally Vanguard's backyard. There's Vanguard and Valley Forge and my office. And so I had to be different to just survive. So, so 16 years ago, I've been in the business 18 years, two years at Edward Jones. So 16 years ago, um, I decided that I was going to focus on as be the hardest working lazy guy ever. And in every business, and Scott, you know this, there's modeling. So if you want to be a good developer, you model or investor in real estate, how they do it. Well, investments, the model is Harvard and Yale. Like there's no question about they are the poster children on how, you know, you over the long term, you get better than than adjusted risk return, blah, blah, blah. And so I studied their annual reports. So I don't know anything they don't know. They don't tell me what they're doing, but they have to tell me what they did. So I'm starting, you know, I'm starting my own business 16 years ago. I can do anything. I don't have anyone tell me what to sell anymore, which also means I'm overwhelmed with what I can do. And I started to realize the market's not what we think it is. So I looked at Harvard and Yale, and to this day, it's it's still true now, they have about 70 to 80% of their investments not in the stock market. So I'm looking at this saying, that's kind of weird. The rest of us have all this money in the stock market. You have to to explain for the moron in the room, myself included, why do Harvard and Yale invest? Like, what's going on with Harvard and Yale that they even have to make investments? So they have foundations to pay for scholarships. So the Harvard and Yale Foundation, you're right. Um, so the Harvard, I'm so close to it that I don't see it. So Harvard and Yale have foundations that have billions of dollars of management. It's where, you know, when you give a donation, you, you're donating to the foundation. Um, you get the tax deduction. And and they don't die and they don't pay tax. Any foundation doesn't ta- die and doesn't pay taxes. So if you figure out how to do one of those, I'll come work for you and we'll take over the world. But until then, um, I'm looking at where, you know, if they're the poster children, they're playing with a different card deck than the rest of us. So I started to peel it off. And, and some of the things I want to share with your, your, your viewers are the things that I didn't know existed until I found out they didn't exist. So we have this picture of the, of the stock market being this gigantic ocean, and everyone's on a cruise liner. Maybe they're on a little dinghy, but it's a very deep, very wide ocean. But if you had to guess, and you may know this, so I, I, I'm not trying to put you on this, and there's no right answer because most people are wrong. You had to guess how many tickers, individual companies, are in this gigantic ocean of all of the U.S. markets. What do you think it would be? I would go with 4,000. So most people say 40,000. Like they think there's all these all these companies. You are closer to the truth. There's about 3,400 different tickers. But when you set aside the things that people actually buy, both personally and their mutual fund guys are buying in their mutual fund, there's only 500 in the S&P. There's only... Uh, there's less than 2,000 in the Russell 2000, and there's about 1,200 to 1,500 tradable stocks that people actually own because there's not that many Facebooks and ExxonMobil and Tesla and Apple um, and, and Amazon, but, but there's not that many. 
So we think it's this big ocean and all these boats are there, but it's like a four inch thick, you know, uh, ocean. And the smartest kids in the class aren't even there. Like the Harvards and Yales, they have 80% of their money somewhere else. So if you ever felt, and if any of your listeners ever felt that the, the rich got richer because they know things the rest of the world doesn't know, absolutely true, and a government program. And the government program's called accreditation, which means not everyone is accredited. You have to be a million dollars, not counting your house. Or if you're married, you have that 300,000 of joint. So that's not everybody, but it's a lot of people. But it's not everybody, but it's a lot of people. So real and, quick, accredited, accredited means you have a million dollars in wealth or how much how much money do you have to make to be considered? 300 if you're married, 180 if you're, indiv- if you're single okay, of so- income. All right, so if you make over a buck eighty a year, you're a married couple making over three hundred, or you got a million dollars in four hundred one k's, stocks, bonds, cash, or just goals. anything not counting your house. It could be in cash. It could be in you know classical truck. So that's the that's the beginning of the menu that other people can in the same restaurant can look at. So we're all in the same path of life. We're all here, and and so my dad was not accredited until later in life. Uh, I, I I did that for him, by the way, but he wasn't accredited, so I couldn't show him the things I was showing complete strangers that were frankly safer than the mutual funds and the individual stocks that I was allowed to show them. And that's the crazy part of the world is, is, is there some downsides and I'm not here to say accredited investments are the answer to everything, but they are something that if someone's about able to look at it, they are doing themselves a disservice by not doing some, some work on it. So we, when I created the company, um, I had a business plan before I had a business. I had, you know, structure before I had anyone else besides me. And, and so for most of those 16, for 12 of those 16 years, all we did was regular fee-based business like, like everyone else, but we always had a, a soft spot for, let's try to do like a household endowment. Let's try to do closer to what Harvard and Yale can do. Now, there's things they can do that you and I would never do and I would never put a client in because they don't die. They can buy land hypothetically outside of San Francisco and wait 50 years for that to become part of the greater metropolitan area. And so we don't have that time frame because we are going to die. Um, so four years ago, and as a cigar smoker, you'll appreciate that. There's two times that my wife has questioned me because she says I get a look in my eye. And after the second time, she says, I'm never going to question you again because I'm scared of your answer. Um, and the first time had to do with uh, business. And the second time had to do with a charity that I, I got, you know, voluntold to be in charge of. So the business side, I, um, I went to my own website and I used to be for 10 years and if you Google today, you'll still get this organically. If you Google best NFL financial advisor, I still show up. I've never paid for it. Um, I'm 5'4", so I like to say I'm like the rock, but I'm half the size and have better hair because um, I have hair and he has none. So, you know, but that's about the extent of my, you know, I do have some guns. I mean, I, let me say it. That's, that's not bad. Solid. I, I Solid for 5'4". Thank you. Thank you. It's a very compact. I'm the small spark that starts big fires. So, so um when I went to my own website, I had two thoughts. Number one, and I went to my own website pretending like I wasn't me as the owner of the website. I was an outside person. So I kind of, it was during a cigar and I realized two things. One, my first thought was I don't have NFL money. And I realized how many people for the 10 years I was in the NFL Players Association, how many people never got to me because they go to my website and got turned off by the fact that I work with football players. They weren't my core market. It was just something I thought was a good feather. And when you're a financial advisor, you need to look like different. You need to look different without going to jail. Like that's the different part is, is so regulated. The second thought, and this is where the, the idea came in, is what if I never left my executive job? I worked at a, a Fortune 500 IT company. Um, I would have hopefully a director, you know, director level executive pack, maybe even be a CIO or whatever, and have um, no money to give me as an advisor to work on. Because the model right now is you buy a product, they make a commission, you know, the advisor makes a commission, or you give them money, they charge you 1%, and then they give you advice. So the thing, the long answer, the shorter answer of, of your story, four years ago, um, I created a retainer-based model to give accredited investors a family office structure without them having to give any money to start the family office. Because a lot of these business owners own businesses, and they don't want to take cash out of it. And why take cash out of your cash cow and put it into the stock market at all time highs? Like it is the most asinine way of getting advice is by giving them money. And then they're kind of forced to put your money in a place it shouldn't go. 
So one of our clients owns uh, a bunch of fast food joints and uh, a couple of years ago, and, and he's like, hey, what are you going to do with 500,000? I'll call you back tomorrow. I called him back and I said, you need to update your, your restaurants. Put the flat screen TV, put the fireplace in there, open the floor plan, because you get a 28% return when you do that. There's not a mutual fund. There's not a, you know, in 12 months. And this is before the election. So I'm like, we're maybe one tweet away on either side of being down 28%. So, so by being retainer-based, we can honestly be a better fiduciary than, than the other people in the business because it doesn't have to just be a fiduciary of the different stuff I can sell you. It can meet you where you are, meet the clients where you are. And I thought it was a simple idea. Still, while I'm smoking the cigar, I look up retainerbasedplanning.com. Nobody owned it. I thought at least a lawyer would own it because retainer is not a new, I didn't make up the word. And you kind of know what it is just by the name of it. So no one. So I bought the damn thing, and now that goes to our Creative Capital, you know, our regular website. And then the press that came out multiple times in the Wall Street Journal, Reuters calling me, um, American, like a bunch of press because I just I look different, I guess now. And now we're in 24 states. I was happy in this tri-state area of, of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New. You know, I was busy enough there. We've doubled in size. We've doubled in practice. And the interesting thing is. Um, I just hired somebody who spent 25 years at Vanguard and, and I'm a little bit, you know, we have a nice office. I'm working from my home office today, but we have a nice office in, in Valley Forge. And I said, you know, you know, that beautiful commissary you have at Vanguard. He's like, yeah, I'm like whatever you bring in your paper bag is the commissary you have here. Yes. Like we're in a nice office, but I, I ain't no Vanguard. And he's like, that's fine. I understand. I'm like, why would you leave after 25 years? He's like, it's simple. John Bogle thought of index investing, simple idea. No one knew it was an option. And once they did, they took it. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're doing the same thing with, with advice. It's a simple idea. You'll pay a retainer, a flat fee retainer, a quarterly retainer. And then you can give advice on wherever the money's at, even if it's not with you. And, and once people know that's an option for the right people, they take it. So the question he asked, and I hired him, you know, not on the spot, but it was, he's like, how many people have you spoken to that fit your profile that didn't hire you? Like, that's a great question. So, you know, it, when you're interviewing, it was over Zoom and it was, you know, 2020 during COVID. So I'm like, I got to, I'm not going to give you a, you know, that's a, there's, there's math behind that. I need to find out from my office because they, turns out the answer was zero. Zero people that fit our profile didn't hire us. They all hired us. Um, and so one of the articles is the last, you know, story to answer this question, because I, you know, there's other things in my head I need to get into your head and then you might not ever sleep again, but that's okay, you know. That's why we have cigars and we relax. Relax. Um, so we got, I got a call from somebody um, who saw one of my articles and it's a huge company, but I don't want to get sued. So I'm not going to say who it was, but it's a huge company. And they called and said, we saw an article. I'm like, thank you. And like, we just want to let you know, we think you cracked the code on how advice will be given in the future. So gotten, I got, you know, goosebumps. I'm like, really? So the same company called me four times. Um, and so the fourth time I'm like, so I have a question. Should I've gotten a bigger Tesla or like, are we talking my own island? Like, what are we talking? And he's like, you know, we're, and it was a $9 billion company. It's a huge company. Um, he's like, we're not saying that, but we're not not saying that. Uh, we don't get into the, a market unless it's a $100 million industry and retainer based planning. You're like one of the few people doing it. That ain't, you know, are you billing $100 million? I'm like, no, I probably wouldn't be answering the phone if I was, I'd, you know, be on that island I keep wanting to get, get to. Um, and I said, well, listen, just so you know, our biggest value to the client and therefore to the company isn't the retainer because the retainer just gets you at the table. And as you know, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. So if you're at the table with these high net worth clients, um, uh, since we've been doing this for the last four years, zero of them have had accredited investments. So when you're talking to someone with five, six, $7 million, they're beyond being barely accredited. They are well in that space and they still have all their money in a brokerage account in regular stocks and bonds. And the best story or the best, you know, best part of being, and I, I, my kids said I was old the other day when I turned 48, uh, under 10, uh, they were nine at the time, but they're in the Roblox and, you know, all the computer games. And I said, I'm, I'm not 48, I'm level 48. I've either done it all or seen it all or know someone who did one of those two. Like, there's nothing that surprises me anymore. And I, and I almost liken it to being in the matrix. Like when someone walks in, I almost can, what the, are they selling or buying? Are they happier? Like I can kind of just see it, which is really cool. A little scary because I haven't been wrong lately, but I know someday I'll be wrong. So getting back to the, the, um, to, to the idea, 
this guy said, well, I said, our business model is retainer. It gets us at the room. It gets us with these conversations. But these high net worth families don't have accredited investments. And, and this business is in the ranking of investments and they you can get fact sheets from the company. And obviously, you know, I'm narrowing down the company that was talking to me, but at the end of the day, it's like, well, um, what, what, what do you mean by credit? I'm like, it's all the things your company and any company in the public market isn't tracking. It's like, well, we track everything. I'm like, I don't think so. I know I'm in a Amazon distribution center and I'm one of a couple thousand people that are owning it. And we're going to get in and out in five or six years. And it's a 20-year lease with Amazon. So someone else is going to buy that. An institution is going to buy it from us and, and squeeze the juice for the next 15 years. And so this is the guy that, you know, obviously a multi, you know, multimillionaire, a highly paid executive, uh, liked the article. And again, so right after I got off the phone, I realized that I had trademark all over my website. But honestly, at the time, I had no trademark. I just figured out the keyboard combination to put the little red, you know, little round yeah, TMs around TM, it. Yeah. So I called an account. I called a, a patent lawyer. Said, "Listen, hey, I just had a call with this big company. They, they're telling me, I, you know, I cracked the code, and they're keeping my eye on, they keep their eye on me. Like, I need all this stuff. You can't, you can't trademark retainer-based planning, just like you can't trademark vanilla ice cream. But we have a uh, milestone clarification process. So that's actually what we're getting into. There's one for business owners." Um, entrepreneurs, which are serial business owners, working professionals, which are the guys that work for someone else, but they're guys and girls and they're C-level. Like they have a lot of money, but they don't have a lot of time to deal with it. Um, and they don't have a lot of money to give someone. And then high net worth retirees, because that's the low hanging fruit in my business. And so we absolutely can work with them. So the lawyer says, well, I'm on your website. I see all these. Tra-. I'm like, none of that is true. Like I just, I just, he's like, Really? Like, yeah. So I, I now have a, a patent or a trademark in the patent office right next to Albert Einstein. Um, you know, so so there's a few things there. So the short answer is we do retainer based planning. We're in 24 states. No money ever has to come to us in the way we're doing the planning. We identify, is there anything the client needs that's close to Harvard and Yale? Do they have it and have access to it? And if not, we'll help them with that. And, um, you know, so we can still do some of the old school stuff and we never kicked out any of our old clients. So we still have all the clients that were with us when it was just us doing fee-based. So I don't know if that's. So I want to, I want to break this down because I always think about like, if I was explaining this to my 19 year old son to get him on the right path for finances, where, how would I, how would I explain to this? So I'm going to tell you what I think you're saying. And then you tell me where I'm wrong because I'm sure I'm wrong. Perfect. Um, I can walk into whatever Vanguard, Fidelity, whatever. I can buy a financial product. I put my hundred thousand dollars into a mutual fund, and they charge me some type of load or fee or ongoing twelve B dash one forty seven fee or something like that. Um, and basically, they're collecting fees either upfront or through the life of the investment. And that's kind of just it's a cost. It's a cost. Or that's one way that you can do investments. Or I can go to one of the big boys, you know, uh, one of the wealth-based uh, private banks, and I can say, hey, I'm putting my whole $500,000 net worth with you, my retirement, my cash, everything. You manage it for me. You do what you're going to do, and they're going to charge me some type of wrap fee or management fee. So they'll charge me like 1% or 2% of the assets. It doesn't matter whether it goes up or goes down, goes up to a million or down to 400000 Every year, they're going to charge me 1% or 2% to manage that money. And theoretically, since they're charging a fee and they know that I'm only going to stay with them if they do well, presumably they're doing a better job, but they probably only have the same stocks, bonds to sell me that I could do by myself. And that's kind of like fee-based planning. What you're talking about is you're saying like, Scott, leave your money in your business because I own a couple of businesses. Uh, leave your $500,000 in Northwestern Mutual where you have your whatever, life insurance and your stocks and bonds. Sure. Leave your money in your 401k, but we're going to charge you, and I'll just take a guess, we're going to charge you $40,000 a year um, to be on a retainer with Fred's team, and we're going to advise you on taxes and potential investments that are maybe off the table because luckily my wife and I are blessed. We do make over $300,000 a year, so we would be considered accredited investors, and you're basically going to do some type of true financial advisement to me on a fee base where you're like, hey, you might want to look at this with Northwestern Mutual, might want to do this with your 401k, might want to redeploy $100,000 to your consolidated coaching coaching business. And oh, by the way, we've got $100,000 to invest in this new Amazon distribution center and you'll probably double your money in five years or something like that. Am I getting this right like conceptually? So the 40,000, uh, I think the most expensive retainer I ever did was 25,000. Our minimum's eight, which ro- rolls out to be 2,000 a quarter. Okay. And if we can't bring in more than 8,000 of value to a client, 
we shouldn't, you know, we will, we'll disengage before the clients do. Um, so that part's right. The second thing is there is a place for low cost, long-term passive investment. And that's what Vanguard and Fidelity are suited for. So the, the fees on the Vanguard and Fidelity, you don't even notice. They are micro, you know, four digits into the decimal system versus the one or 2% working with a big bank or whatever. Um, so when you add to that, that we still, so we had a good example is a client who worked for a huge Fortune 500 company and had a $250,000 account with one of those accounts that were the fee-based, like you were talking, and had $4 million in his 401k. So this guy, and when you're fee-based, you got to, all of us have limited amount of time. So when you're fee-based, you have to have minimums or else you can't you can't make money on $50,000, 1% of $50,000. You just don't have enough time. So this guy had like a $3 million minimum and he let, who's now my client, let this guy in for 250 because this guy knew he had a $6 million 401k that, you know, if he did his job, he'd come out. So the client, my client now, he wasn't my client then, said, okay, you're charging me 1% of 250000 What are you going to do different for the 1% of $4 million? That's $40,000. I mean, it gets right ironically to the number you were talking about. And the guy didn't have an answer. It's the same shit. It's the same allocation. It's the same. And I had a client, a different guy, uh, $17 million, all in stocks and bonds. And I said, hey, you did a great job. You built a great portfolio. You're not in anything different than my twins. What do you mean? Like, I can get them an S&P 500 and they're in the same shit you're in. And then he gave us enough of his statements to actually do the analysis. He had four different brokers that were eating, you know, they're kind of four different kitchens doing four different things, but they all baked the same cake. And I said, listen, I'm going to save you a lot of money. You can put $17 million into the one S, uh, uh, S&P index fund. Not you shouldn't, but he had the exact same exposure paying four guys 1% to do their own thing versus if he just bought the S&P 500, same exposure. No one should have $17 million in one ticket, ticket. but the asinine part of it is he wasn't going to be any less diversified because right. he was in the same stock. Right. So, so those conversations open. So absolutely right about that retainer. Um, ironically, and this goes, you know, this could change, but every one of our retainer clients haven't made it to the second year under the retainer model because during the year they use us to do things that they can't do without us. And we get a finder's fee. So if you did put a hundred thousand in the Amazon, um, we get a 5% finder's fee but your first statement still shows a hundred thousand. So, so it's not a load. It's just the way of credit investments. Like they, you're going to be rare. You know, credit investors are rare offices that can do this are rare. I couldn't do this when I was at the big brokerage firm. You can't do that. Any brokerage company you, you know, the name of probably doesn't do true accredited investments right? because they have 18,000 reps and they can't have all these people have these kind of illiquid. You really need to know your client all, and, and our clients don't go right into the alternatives. They're planning clients first. Right. We make sure your, your, your stuff is okay everywhere else. So then you can buy the jacuzzi, but we have to make sure your roof isn't leaking and right. the roof might not be with us, but we'll look at it. Right. Um, so you are, you're absolutely on true. So the, the sad part of the conversation is um, at $8,000 a year, that's not something that your son can plug in. You know, hopefully he'll have, you know, he must have a really good lawn mowing business if he has, right. you know, the kind of network. But but that's, we help our clients' kids as just part of the retainer. Um, and, and so that, it's not a crazy idea. It's a unique idea that I don't know why I'm the first person. You know, it reminds me of the woman who, pay, uh, who trademarked Happy Birthday. Like she figured out no one owned it. So she went and got a trademark and now we can't sing it in a restaurant. Right. So I'm not saying I want to screw people out of, you know, now we have to have like this stupid Chi Chi's happy birthday or whatever the, yeah. new, you know, whatever their, the restaurant's version of it is. Um, wow. I just dated myself with Chi Chi reference. Totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you said something in there that I think, you know, when, when people, when people get confused because the rich get richer or now the popular thing to do is to vilify the rich as if somehow they somehow people think it's a zero sum game. If people get more rich, I'm going to get more poor. It's like that's not how it works through all of recorded society. Like rich and poor people are getting richer. Like you much rather be poor, quote unquote, in America right now than be the fucking king of Egypt 3000 years ago. Anyway, I digress. That's me getting on my soapbox. So um, it is interesting when people say like, well, you know, the rich get richer or the rich get this or they've got, they can play insider baseball. I think what they don't understand what they're talking about is the accredited investments. Cause you said something in your, in your little diatribe there that, hey, stocks are at an all time high. And I think most of the stuff that most Americans can invest in. They can buy a house, 
They can put money in their 401k. Maybe they can buy some mutual funds. And it's, all, it's all here. It's all at an all-time high. So if all those assets, asset classes are, are mostly correlated and they're all at an all-time high, it's like, where the fuck do you put your money? Because it's like, gold is expensive. Pork belly commodities are expensive. Houses are expensive. You know, buying groceries is expensive. And I think what people don't understand is because the government has set up this accredited investor criteria, you know, I was able to put... Uh, recently, again, family super blessed. We've had a couple amazing years thanks to the uh, low interest rate environment. I was able to put fifty thousand dollars in like a long term property investment where they're getting a smoking deal on like a forty million dollar apartment building, and I put some money into a, a hedge fund that's investing in a bunch of the you know legal legalization of marijuana. That just doesn't exist. So if the stock market starts to take a dive and those asset classes do okay, marijuana and multifamily housing, like all be okay. But um, can you explain kind of the, and I know there's a million of them, can you explain a little bit like when you bring a accredited investor idea outside of the stock market to a client, what's the kind of stuff that you're talking about? So I, I believe um, the simplest thesis works when the shit hits the fan. If there's derivatives or if this, if then clauses, you know, that's when things get real, you know, that's when 2008 happens. So in the market, in the stock market right now, what you just mentioned, it is, it is very easy and very legal for every advisor to put a new client in things at all time highs and no one's going to question it, even though we all know it's going to go down. Like there's there's no question that some, oh, you know, right now I'm not going to say that this stock's a good value because it's been going up for 20 years. And, and kind of like an earthquake, the longer the correction goes without happening, the bigger the correction. None of us saw 2008 happening. We all see whatever's coming happen. Like we see the storm clouds and whether it's inflation and I dare all of your viewers to put something in their Amazon cart tonight and don't buy it and tell me when and, 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 and write to you when they get the alert that the price went up. Because for me, it was Friday to Monday. I bought, I, I looked at something on Friday on, on a, and I left it in my cart and I forgot about it. And it was $9.97 and it was $13.94 by Monday morning. And, and I've done it since then on other products just to play with it. And it's been happening, you know, all the time. So everything's at all time high. Inflation's never been this bad. Um, and the last time any country did what we did was Argentina and they're in hyperinflation. The problem is we're not the only ones to do it. Everyone in the world did it. So it seems less. So to answer your question, um, if the thesis for the stock market is buy, hold and hope, just because you and I buy Apple or buy Amazon, that we're not going to do shit to make the stock go up. And and that's that's the thesis at the end of the day, that's really the only thing you're doing is you're buying it, hoping it's worth more in the future. And that's that's not a strategy. That's not a real thesis. So if you remember um, Pretty Woman and Richard Gere, private equity was Richard Gere. Private equity is an asset class. You need to be accredited a lot of times. I'm hoping some of these things get down to the general population. I mean, I'm hoping because it's it's very frustrating to not be able to lift the velvet rope up high enough for everyone I know to get in, I have like, well, what do you make? Oh, then you can get in. And that's not, that's not who I am. That's, you know, so private equity in general won't buy anything unless they already know who they're going to fire, who they're going to hire, what they're going to change to turn that around. So private equity is very similar to that, that real estate deal where you don't buy real estate, just hoping it's going to be worth more. You're buying real estate because you're taking a C to a B or a B to an A, or you're buying it because, you know, the train's coming in and you want to own something that's going to then have, you know, something outside of the property is going to make it go up. So private equity is absolutely an asset class that Harvard and Yale have had forever. Like you can go back to 1987 annual report and they have private equity. Um, and now private equity is available at $50,000, you know, to be a fund to fund. So it's not like you need to have $3 million to get into private equity. So that's definitely one um, institutional real estate. So the real estate, and think of it as levels, the real estate at the human individual level where most people are, that's super frothy. When you have to write an I love you letter to buy a house and you're writing a letter to the house saying, I really want to raise my kids in your walls, you know, that is real. That is, that is, but it's happening every day. Now, I think in Pennsylvania, it's illegal, but it still happens. I like to buy, you know, I'd like to buy the house and here's the letter from my kids to tell you how important the house is to us. So at that level, it's frothy and there's not a lot of, you know, you're, you're hoping that what you buy is going to be worth more at the level above it, that Amazon, as an example, most people don't even know it's there until after it's built and they won't know it's sold until after 
they won't even know. They'll never know it's sold because the chain it doesn't change. The, the brand will still be Amazon for 20 years. So it, it there's access, which is really, you know, when you my 30, we, we do advice and access. It's that second part that changes the ballgame. And it's access. And the only reason I have as much access as we do is I started 18 years ago after I left the brokerage company because this is all I had. It, you know, I couldn't just do Vanguard, uh, have Vanguard funds come to me and I charge 1% because all that would do, I'm a football guy. I'm starting everything at a 1% penalty. If, if I'm in the same 60, 40 as you are there and we're doing it here and your risk hasn't changed, your shit and your risk isn't going to change either according to the computer. So, you know, that was the part, that was my aha moment. And it was interesting. Um, I, I was, you know, got divorced and um, my first day was 9-11. So I wasn't making money my first years in the brokerage firm. My dad, you know, mom and dad's like, you're going to go back to your corporate job? Like, no. But every Wednesday, our landlord would come in and empty the trash cans. So you know how people show, and you talked about universe and everything, and then I believe in that too. You know how people show up at the right time, and then you, 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 it's a change in your life, and you go away. So I'm sitting there, and during this point, I got my dog and my drums out of my divorce. That's really all I got, my, my dog and my drum. He was the most expensive Jack Russell in the world and worth every penny. Love him. He's in a box now. He died. He's in a box now in our, you know, in our kitchen. Um, so I'm asking my landlord who's coming in and I could tell he had money. Not only did he own half the town, but he was so bored. He was at five thirty, six o'clock emptying my trash cans in the office and his wife was running the vacuum and he's driving a $95,000 Mercedes. So he could have outsourced it, but he had nothing else to do. So he's insourcing it. And I'm like, Hey, and his name was Bob. I'm like, Bob, can I ask you a question? I'm a good altar boy. I'm an NBA. I have never screwed anyone over ever in my life. I'm making $800 a year and I'm eating my 401k because my day day one was right after 9-11. So no one's really buying anything and they're not buying it from a kid who's still wet, you know, wet behind the ears. So like, how did you make money? And his answer to me is a question that now I ask people and they ask me the same question. And these are the, the things I want your clients to just change the way you think. He's like, well, remember, I'm at the brokerage. I hadn't left yet. He was one of the reasons I left. I'm at the brokerage firm. He's like, well, what's your what's your biggest margin strategy? I'm like, I don't know. I've been trained to, you know, meet everyone and it's a contact sport. Oh, Scott, look like you have kids. You should have a 529. Scott, you have gray hair. You should have an IRA. Um, Scott, you don't have kids or gray hair. You should open up a, a brokerage account and put $50 a month in it. Like whatever it is, it was a transactional. And so um, he's like, well, that's your first problem. If you don't stand for something, no one's going to know what you specialize in. If you don't specialize in it, the people with the real money will never pick you because you don't go to a general practitioner when you have brain damage. And if you have, you know, brain can or whatever. And, and I'm like, really? I'm like, all right, well, smart ass, what did you do? And he's like, all I did was for everybody. And you can't do it yet, but the interest rates are getting a little bit closer to doing it. But let's say you were healthy and I'll give you a real number. All he did was what was called annuity life arbitrage. Now, I'm a smart guy. I worked at finance at the, corp at the Fortune 500 company and I have an MBA. I know what arbitrage is. I know what annuity is. I know what life is. I don't know what annuity life arbitrage is. I'm like, all right, well, and I do this all the time, Scott. It's like, you know, I know what that is, Bob, but if I had to explain it to someone else, what would you, what would be the way I would explain this? That way you're not saying I have no clue what you're talking about, but I had no clue what he was talking about. So here's the math. Um, and he's like, well, show me an old lady in your, in your, in your practice um, that's healthy. So I had, you know, Mrs. Smith or whatever, she was 75. And so he's like, all right, I'll come back next week. Cause you know, every week he ran, um, you know, empty the dishes or empty the trash. So he comes back a week from now. He's like, all right, for Mrs. Smith, I can put a hundred thousand into a in a life only annuity that pays her fifteen thousand a year until she dies. And when she dies, the annuity goes away. Like she loses that money, which is not not the whole point of the deal. Prior to locking that money in, we get life insurance or her the kind of old stripped down, no plain vanilla life insurance that your grandparents would have had and my grandparents would have had. And for this woman, it costs five grand because life insurance isn't built for a 75 year old to get it for the first time. It's built for you to get it when you're 35 and pay until you're 75 or dead. But it's not there. It's not necessarily the insurance company isn't going to change the whole policy because it wasn't built for a 75 year old to get in, but they can't stop it. You know, they can, and they underwrite it. So she's getting 15 from one company for on the hundred thousand and she has to pay five grand to replace the hundred thousand when she goes. Well, I'm not good with math, but that's the 10% spread. And, and I am good with that. Um, and she has no market exposure. Markets up or down, doesn't matter. She still has it. And because of her age, 
a lot of that income she's coming is tax-free. It's because they're figuring out that she might not live long enough. So while she's getting this income, most of the 15 grand isn't going to be taxable. So before I left, I had called the, um, you know, so like, holy crap. And the funny thing is, Scott, I said this to Bob and four people this month said this to me. What I said to Bob was, if my clients knew what you did, they wouldn't be my clients. I'm now Bob. I'm, you know, I don't even know where Bob is. I'm no longer in the building. That was, you know, 20 years, 20 years ago. I've, I've had people come to me and say, if my clients knew what you did, they wouldn't be my clients. So I'm, I'm on, I'm on the right track. So before I left, I do the same computer uh, at the brokerage company. And I'm like, all right, what's the annuity going to pay? Well, instead of 15 out in the real world, because of brokerages and fees, it's paying 12. And instead of the life insurance costing five, it's costing nine. So what would have been a 10% spread is a 3% spread and not worth doing. So I'm like, holy crap. If this is the world I live in, I knew the world wasn't fair, but I didn't realize it's like built in and there's, and I'm like, wow, you know, Bob knew something and he did it for 10 years, made millions of dollars and stopped doing it because that's all he did. You would sell a business for 7 million bucks. He put $7 million in these two different things. And I'm like, let me guess, you're emptying my trash can because you don't have any service calls. Fred, I could give two shifts as market goes down. My clients are getting 10% for the rest of their life. Oh, and by the way, it was almost like one of those Palumbo, well, wait, there's more. He's like, I have the kids own the life insurance. So when mom and dad dies, their estate has no money in it. And the life insurance is out of the estate. And I didn't have to pay a lawyer to do all this crap. And he's like, and I don't do it for 100,000, 75-year-old Mrs. Smith. I do it for clients with 5, 10, 15, 20 million bucks. So that became my answer. I'm like, Bob, do you mind if I do this? He's like, I am retired. And it wasn't my idea. I took it from someone else. I'm like, well, how come I've never heard this on, on the commercials on TV? It's like, I don't know. I was just fat, dumb and happy doing it. You know, I'd have two clients a meeting I, or two clients a month. I did it for 10 years. I have enough money coming in. He's like, oh, by the way, nothing that matters, but I got paid twice. I got paid by the annuity and I got paid by the life insurance. And I have no, you know, I don't have office. I don't have a person that has to answer the phone. So that was the beginning of um, knowing, and this is the things, you don't have to be accredited for that. So there's things that aren't accredited that you can have access to. Um, and and I'll, I'll put one product out there. There is a Tanner Fitzgerald income fund that is not for accredited investors. The downside is not every investment office, we do, by the way, so that's why I'm not teasing you, um, even has access to it. But, there, but that's something that is not accredited. You have to have a relationship with an advisor. If they have it in their, if they're allowed to sell it, they should be, because it's it's something that is um, hard assets, real estate. 80% of the fund is in buildings, actual addresses. Uh, and after, I think immediately, it is monthly liquid. So they're, they're, they're starting to, I'm starting to see, because I still have non-special people in my, not the accredited special, I have non a credit clients, most of my friends, most of my family. Um, I, I want to do as much to mimic what I'm doing for strangers as I can, because I need to, I need to sleep at night. And that's, you know, that's me doing good, trying to do good. So I, I want to go so, back to that inflation talk because um, Thomas yeah. Sal, uh, Thomas Sal is one of my favorite people to read. And, and to me, he's got the best definition of inflation, which is just too much money uh, chasing too few goods. And so, you know, whether it's because people are making money or their salaries are inflated or the government's printing, you know, 50% of the money in existence in the last 18 months, whatever. I think, I think we can all agree inflation is a real thing. It's a really dangerous thing because it makes stuff more expensive and there's too much money chasing too few goods. So I am of like two minds. Um, and, and you tell me which one of these minds should be 51% instead of just 50-50. Uh, mine number one is like, okay, this inflation, the stock market being at all time high, the housing market being at all time high, something is going to crash. I should be hoarding cash, have a bunch of dry powder because if I would have had half a million bucks in 2008, 2009 to buy triplexes in Atwater Village and single family residence in Hollywood Hills and $200,000 houses in Eagle Rock, I would be rich beyond belief because I, I could have got a loan. I still had a job and um, you know I should be keeping all that powder dry in cash feeling great. That's like 50% of my mind. The other 50% of my mind is like, well, if I keep my money in cash, inflation is going to eat away with it. The government is going to find ways to continue manipulating the market to keep prices low and debt high, and they're just going to keep printing money. So if I don't deploy all that cash now to assets, houses, 
Rolex watches, the stock market, whatever, if I'm not hoarding assets, then I'm just falling behind five to 10% every year because inflation is eating up my money. And it's like every day I have analysis paralysis. It's like, should I go all in on being an asset class owner and owning assets because inflation is just gonna make me rich on paper over the next three years? Or is it gonna crash in the next three years and I should be hoarding cash so I can buy property and stocks and everything at a discount? And this, this like legitimately keeps me awake at night. So I would say the thing about door number two being true is the assumption that things going to keep going that, you know, the, the, that, and there are, I think 120 cargo ships waiting to come in. So, so normally when the fed made extra money and, and again, they can say it, it's not making money because they're buying it back, but they're, you know, they're manufacturing currency. Um, there's two things that keep me a few things that keep me up. Number one, because of multiple reasons, and, and we don't have to, it's on all politics, but because of multiple reasons, the supply chain is not able to get you the thing you want to buy. So before when they made all this money, our economy just expanded. You just bought more stuff because you had more money and you could get it. Well, I know people that have clients, they, they do roofing and siding. They have clients who need roofing and siding. A storm came in. They have the employees because that's even a hard part to do right now, having employees. What they don't have is the actual roofing and siding. They don't have the siding because a resin place in Mexico is, is, you know, didn't get something from DuPont and it'll take nine. And so I said, how bad is it to this guy? And it's like, I furloughed 50 people. I'm, I, they won't take a purchase order for nine months. They're so behind that they won't take a purchase order. I'm like, well, can't you just get siding from somewhere else? It's like, they're all doing it. So again, because of all this, this extra money, if we can't put it into the economy, that's when really bad shit happens. The other thing is um, there's 50 and 80 year cycle. So my role in the company is chief wealth strategist. So I'm supposed to have all the answers. And, and all I do is and I really try to look at the board as it is not how I want it to be and not how I think it should be. I got to kind of see what's there. So in every revolution, agricultural to industrial, yes, your job changed. And maybe you retired as a farmer or you sold the farm and just lived off that, but your kids at least had a place to go to work. It was in the factories now because farming wasn't where it was going to be. So you got educational, you got the, you know, agriculture going to industrial going. And now we're at whatever's next after digital there. That's where jobs aren't going to be. You know, I have, um, again, that same client with the multiple franchises. I, um, I, when Biden got elected, I said, so what are you going to do if they raise minimum wage? Within seconds, he sent me the invoice for the kiosk. He's like, I'm going to lay off a third of my people. They're going to get a kiosk. They're going to build their own sandwich. I need someone to run the restaurant, someone to clean, and someone to cook. No one else will have a job. So, so those things haven't happened to the point where we see it. Um, but there are, and, and if you add in artificial intelligence and blockchain, people with MBAs that have white shirts and ties that go to work that never been laid off in their life because they're not the worker bees. They're up there, you know, not the CEOs, but they're right up there. They're not going to have a job. Private equity right now is going into companies that have nothing to do with each other other than one's a supplier to the other vendor. And they're putting in private blockchains and they're saying, okay, if 80% of your business of me is to you and for you is to me, we're going to buy the private equity is going to buy both businesses lay off both of our accounts receivable and both of our accounts are payable, put in a private blockchain and business will go, but with a third of the people. But we have a um, steel mill down the place still open doing just as much as they did in the eighties, but where they had 3000 people, they have 50 pushing buttons and, and in the Homer Simpson in the thing. So all of these trends are ahead of us. I am more uh, bearish on what's going on. So I would, I wouldn't say cash is the best place because obviously inflation's in there. There's some short-term places for cash. One of the things I found out about that, that I didn't even know, I know public companies and I know private companies and I know preferred stock and I know common stock. What I didn't know is a public company can offer private preferred stock. Because when my dad died, it was everything that my grandparents went to, my parents went to me. There was something special about that money. And it was three years ago. So I wasn't necessarily going to go in the market again, all time highs. Uh, my wife wouldn't let me put on Bitcoin, uh, which was probably smart. But, you know, it was it was the last of the Hubler's money before it got to me. So I had to find something 
relatively safe to get me through the election, to get me through whatever comes after the election, which we're living now, not even know when COVID was going to be on the on the radar. Um, so I found private preferred stock. It's a five year. I'm stuck for five years, but I have zero common share volatility. And so and it pays 5.5. So again, not not a life changing thing, but that's something that um, is dry capital for me. I think in year five, whatever shit's hitting the fan will already be splattered by then. Um, hard assets, uh, you, if you buy them right, but you can, I think you can buy them right by not buying them right now. So I sold my Pocono house after five years, it doubled in price. And I didn't, you, you know, in the Poconos, you don't buy real estate to double in price. You just buy it and hope it's worth what you paid for it 10 years later. Um, and I sold it. And there's a thing called a opportunity zone tax credit. Yep. And if you go into an opportunity zone fund, you don't have to pay the capital gains. So I sold this thing for twice what I paid for it, but I don't want to pay taxes. And so you go into an opportunity zone fund. And again, you got to be accredited. So sadly, these are these are not things for everybody. But it comes out after 10 years at 3x tax free. And and that code and that, you know, that tax code is going to be gone by next year. So it's not something that we can do forever. So what I tell my wife is like, I, I tell her right now, someone's overpaying for our future lake house. And I will be more than happy to take it off his hands three, four, five, six years from now. Right. So as long as you have that that longer term strategy, the buying opportunities aren't here yet. I think if you buy something now because you're afraid it will go up more, that's exactly what a bubble is, except for the bubble is everywhere. It's in, you know, you put, uh, you know, dental floss in Amazon and the next day it's worth $4 more because, you, you know, you didn't buy it and you didn't lock it in. Um and one of the things that we've been told and lied to, frankly, about it is that the inflation's transitory. So if you have a rental, you raise your rents. I raise my rents. When inflation goes away, quote unquote, I'm not going to lower my rent. And my employees, I have to pay them a certain amount for them to show up for work. I'm not going to go back to them, and nor would anyone go back and say, okay, now the inflation's not here. So every place that inflation really shows, other than in products, but in the big things that matter, home, your, what you pay for your home and what you pay for your rent and what you get paid, those things aren't going anywhere. They're not right. going backwards. Right. That is ugly. That is sad. That is scary. Um, the, the other thing that keeps me up, if you look at the first domino of 2008, and history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes a lot. And if you look at the first domino in 2008, it really was kind of at the foot of, the in, the industry reviewers that said you are triple A because they knew that if I didn't give you triple A, you would take your collateral mortgage loan to the reviewing company down the street and they would give you triple A and take your fees. And then the day after you're bankrupt, because obviously you weren't triple A, you had all these crap things, all derivative in there. So let's pretend like those ranking um, you know, those rating companies, I don't want to get sued again, um, but those are sued at all. Those, those rating companies um, do their job this time. Well, the biggest buyers of, of bonds right now are pensions. And if you're a pension, you can only own a bond that's triple B or better. That's has to be investment grade. So let's say someone at these investment companies decide that maybe Ford, and I'm, you know, whatever the triple B, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be Ford, but maybe the company isn't triple B anymore, it's double B. But when the biggest buyers the pensions become the biggest sellers. No one's the prices are going to collapse. And if your bond, if you're a company whose bonds collapsing because the pensions now by law have to get it out of the pension because you're not triple B anymore. Um, and I don't even know if Ford's triple B, so I'm just using that as a gamble, as a company. Um, well, now your stock's taking a shit because your you know your capital structures are in, in. So now everything goes down because if this company is Ford or it's AT and T or whoever it is, they're going to look at everyone else in that industry, whatever it is. And like, you know what? They're not triple B either. So that that will be that could be the spark that starts the whole thing unraveling. And it'll be with the best intentions. Like it's gonna be some analyst saying, wait, I don't think they're triple B anymore. I'm gonna go out and do the right thing. I'm gonna make them double B. And then that's gonna have a snowball of of apocalyptic proportions because the bigger sellers become the bigger sellers, you know, buyers become the biggest sellers. So so institutional, with the laws and everything out there, that type of diesel engine running the wrong way is hard to unwind. By the time people realize, holy crap, we forced them to sell this, this then, and it's happened in Japan. 
Fixed income in Japan, almost all of it is owned by the government. Yeah. So the other thing that keeps me up is if you read, uh, have you or your uh, your your you know your people Google the debt jubilee? Have you ever heard about that? No. And I, f- I right. feel like after you tell me this, I'm going to be really scared because, you know, my, yes. my concern about everything you just described is like, forget about me and my couple hundred thousand dollars of investable money in dry powder. My concern is that the government and both parties, quite frankly, are on such a spending spree, such a taxation spree. They've kept rates artificially low for a decade. Like, what's the government's dry powder to get us out of another 2008? At least going into 2008, we weren't running the same deficit loads. The interest rates were a little bit higher, so they could kind of juice the goose by dropping yep. interest rates and stuff like that. And if interest rates go up, the government can't afford their debt. Yeah, yeah. So you're asking the so so. Here's what um, and again, I I am a positive person. I love everybody, but I always look at. I might not agree with you, but I need to understand you. And I don't understand the cavalier spending by every government everywhere, more than anyone, even the most liberal, whether it's liber- whatever the liberal is in the country, even the most open people are, are spending more than even they think they would ever get the ability to spend. So someone told me, and it was almost like, a, a, you know, again, looking at the X-Files, like, look at the debt jubilee, look that up. So the debt jubilee, and, and here's where it's a theory. I don't. I hope it's not true, and I hope it never comes true. But it does put some fabric of why around everything we're seeing, and that's the scary part. Is if it's not a conspiracy when it looks like it's what makes sense. So here's the debt jubilee, and it started as a white paper, and I think it was, uh, you know, kind of at the at the academia, you know, made the academia um, swirls. So it's nothing that's on the Today Show, and I didn't see it on, you know. I don't think Howard Stern's ever going to talk about it. So here's what it is. It's when the debt of the world becomes unsustainable. And to me and you, I think that's already happened, but unsustainable to the fact that no one can do business with each other because they don't believe you're going to pay if we're going to do business with each other. So we all add a country. So us, you and me, we're getting, we're getting screwed 17 ways from sideways if this happens. But the countries go into a closed door. And I don't owe you China anything. You don't owe me China anything. We don't owe British uh, America anything. We don't owe Germany. Like we just at a global level reset the debt to zero at the country level. And what if that was always their last domino? Hey, let's fix everything. Let's spend everything. And let's make it so hard to sustain for so everybody. Not just like it was just us. No one would do it. It was just China, like a screw you, China. You know, you had it coming. But when we're all doing it, that has a lot more common sense to it. If you think about it, is like, okay, I won't say anything if you won't say anything, but let's 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 get everything we want. Let's get everything we want to buy. And then at the end of the day, let's just say none of us owe anybody anything. None of us have to default because we're all doing it. Right. So it's not going to be a corporate default. It's not going to be now that won't change my mortgage. That won't change your mortgage. But interest rates will go crazy. Um, and that scares me because of how much sense it makes. And if the Federal Reserves of the world, not just are, but if, if that's like their magic bullet, that's never happened in the history of man. And I don't think the market is going to be like, oh, that's awesome. You yeah. guys get everything and we're hell because all those bonds are going to be for everybody are going to be probably repegged. They're not going to be zero. They're like, yeah, we can't pay what we owe. Yes, so we're going to pay something. Because now we don't owe everybody everything, so uh, that that scares me. That's a lot more predictable than an organized new third world order. Right. But it kind of gets us to the same place. I'm a huge capitalist, but if none of us have a job, and and we have to have a you know stable income from the government because our jobs aren't here anymore, well, that's socialism. Last time I looked, so they, all these things are, are, are scary-ish. But there's going to be opportunities. I mean that, and that's the part. You know, there's going to be opportunities. I think. Looking at where institutions are going today is my biggest value add to anyone that wants to look at, you know, how do the tea leaves look? Well, the people that have money that aren't going to want to lose, what are they doing? BlackRock is buying every friggin' single family home they can get their hands on. When, as an I, example. when I heard about that, you know, Black, when, when I hear about, because I kind of think we're getting to the point where we can stop calling them conspir- conspiracy theories and 
start when they're true. And, and start calling them spoiler alerts. Um, but it's like when you see BlackRock, which is a huge, huge hedge fund buying all the single family residents. And when you hear about Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates buying up a bunch of farmland, it's like, that can't be your core business model. Like, I'm pretty sure the return on investment for microchips and, you know, uh, Amazon one day shipping is much, much, much better than old school agricultural farming. So when you hear all this stuff, it's scary. And then, you know, what makes me believe that there might be something to your debt jubilee idea is one of the things that have really bugged me about COVID, and I don't think enough people are talking about it, is the idea of the U.S. government effectively just being able to suspend contract law, where it's like, oh, you and your tenant have a legally binding agreement that has been the basis of capitalism in America for 250 years. Yeah, the government's just going to come in and say that contract's null and void and your tenant doesn't have to pay you. And then it's like, oh, the landlord still has to pay taxes. Yeah, landlord still has, to pay, still taxes. has to pay the mortgage. Exactly. Or, oh, hey, you know what? You you signed a contract when you were 18 to pay back this hundred thousand dollars in student loans to get a, you know, degree in whatever. Um uh, liberal study, Chicano dance interpretation of feminist, right. whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, you signed that contract, <laughs> but don't don't worry about it. We're just going to go ahead and null and void that contract because we realize you can't pay it. And I'm like, I'm kind of looking at it and I'm like, COVID is a real disease. I know people that have gotten very sick from it. Sadly, I know a couple of people that have died from it. I'm not saying that anything is not true about the current pandemic. I'm also saying that like how weird that the government is using this as an opportunity to effectively suspend contract law, which to me is the much scarier conspiracy theory, spoiler alert, whatever you want right. to call it. So when you talk about all the governments kind of going into a back room and being like, well, let's just suspend all the contracts and do a hard set of our debt, that sadly makes a little bit of sense to me. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Fred, let's uh, let's close with some uh, with some good news, uh, so that we don't scare everybody about the jet du- jubilee, the debt jubilee. And I know you and I were talking before we get started that like you know we're both cigar smokers. We've had great conversations with awesome people, just kind of sitting around the lounge and whatnot. And then you kind of took a philosophy of of kind of just saying yes to the universe. So uh, you've got some funny stories about Phil Collins, about people you've met smoking cigars, about just saying yes yeah. to everything. So give us give us some some fun talk to close out the session here. Perfect. So one thing I think um, we sh- you should try because I'm trying it. I read a book. It was called um, The Surrender Experiment. It's a couple years old, New York Times bestseller. The gist of it is in the late 70s, early 80s, this guy was a hippie guy. And because his scholarship paid for his school, his dad gave him his money. And um, in the book, he like meditated and he meditated for 36 hours or something crazy. And so at the time, he felt he got enlightened. Now, you and I are probably saying he probably just lost blood to his brain because he sat in the same position for 36 hours. So I'm not here to tell you the meta reason. So long story short, he wanted to just get back to there. Like that was his driving, you know, and so he was a professor and then he would live in his van and drive. And and so he used the money to buy a lot. And he had said to himself, I'm going to just um, to get back where I need to be. I'm just going to flow with life, which is another way of, you know, just, you know, it's all saying the same things. And he's sitting there and people realize he's, doing these, you know, sitting by himself and people start showing up. And this one lady shows up and says, listen, I'll pay for it. It'll be yours, but can I build a temple on your land? And so all, and so this guy ends up, you know, the whole book's about his life. He ends up being a multi-billionaire and he left the ever, and it was in the Florida Everglades. He left the Everglades like three times. So after I read that book, I'm like, hmm. And so during, during a cigar, I'm thinking to myself, what are all the milestones, all the pivot points in my life that really made a difference. And I made the list, my biggest client I ever had, meeting my second wife after I would have bet you a million dollars, I was never gonna get married again, never gonna put, you know, it's all about me from now on and taking care of me and my family, you know. So that was a bet you could have made your million dollars on because I would have taken that bet because there's no way. So you make the list. And then I take that list of all the, oh my God. And, and then that was, was a, so, so uh, meeting Phil Collins in 1983, I'm 10 years old. And my older brother was too cool for school, but he was an engineer. And so his motorcycle wouldn't start. So he calls my mom and says, can you come pick me up? My motorcycle won't start. And so we go there and I'm sitting in the waiting room and it's outside of Philadelphia. It wasn't a beautiful New York student. It was like outside, like I won't say it's a dump, but it was outside Philadelphia. And it was just, you know, and these three guys show up and it was Genesis and Phil Collins. And he goes, hello, because hello, young lady, how are you? To my mom. And, and he walks away and he goes to check in with the front desk. And my brother's like, do you know who that is? Like, no, is that your boss? He's like, 
no, you idiot. That's a, like a, a really famous singer. So I'm like, I think I'm smart now. Like, that's the lead singer for Men at Work. He's like, you are an asshole. No, go get his autograph. So I asked my mom, like, you know, can I have? So she gives me the, the a, a blank, like a, a loser lottery ticket, and the ubiquitous blue pink, a uh, blue a bic pen that every mom has with like the the cap that was like falling off and you know chewed up. So I'm like following Phil, and he he, he made at this point he walked down, and he is on the other side of a door that has a red light that says do not enter. So I'm smart enough, even attended to, to not, you know, now I would have walked through like, hey, Phil, I'm here. You owe me. So I I, uh, I will take full credit for his rise of stardom from 1983 on, because that's when I'm like, holy crap, I met that guy. And then I brought up the drums and I, and I learned a lot about his work ethic, work ethic from that. And so that was one of the things like I could not have put that on a business plan. And then all the other things, my biggest deal in meeting him, my wife tells me sometimes I'm like Farish Gump, like I'll just meet people and they become friends. And I find out that they were famous and I didn't know at the time, I mean, you know, I, I never call anyone the lead singer for a minute work anymore. So after I made that list, I realized the biggest things didn't come from a plan, didn't come. It was just come from being open, aware and making the, 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 a good decision. So I said two years ago, I'm just going to say yes to stuff. And then I get a guy that calls me and says, I read an article about you. You know, I'm a local CPA. Can we go out to lunch? And I am so busy. I don't want to go out to lunch with anybody. I don't want to go out to lunch with people I know, let alone, a, you know, complete stranger. And he's a CPA and I, I have enough CPAs I work with. Like, I don't need any more. There was no reason to say yes to him. But I just told myself, I'm going to say yes. This meeting, you, you know, you are still in the webinar. I didn't need anything out of it. You're not paying me. I'm not paying you. Like, it's not. But I said I'd say yes, and and so um, meet with this guy, and and two years into it, because then COVID happened. But at the whole time, my only problem in my life right now is I need more people to work for me for my clients. We got people waiting t- two months to meet with a person in our office. That ain't fair to them. That's not what I'm trying to build. I wasn't built for having this, many people interested in retainer that's happening. So I had to hire someone. You know, want to hire someone like me, and. Even if you're paying, it's hard to find people. Yeah. And, and, and so it's just hard to find. So in passing, this guy who I've had multiple lunches with just because he's a nice guy now says, oh, by the way, my son's looking for a job. Oh, what's he do? Well, he worked at Vanguard and SDI. What? So I have, he's third, three weeks now in my office, a perfect wealth strategist, 41-year-old guy, not a kid. You know, not someone, that, you know, he's already screwed up at other places. Not, you know, he is not like he's, he's going to screw up with my clients. He's already been right. there. And the only reason I have someone and everyone's like, how did you find somebody? Like two years ago, I said yes to a lunch I didn't want to have. And the so amount crazy. of, and it now took two years, but I, at the whole time, I just felt like I'm going to meet the right people at the right time. And the other part of this is if it doesn't work, like if I'm trying to push, if it took us 15 times to get us to do this. That's me saying that. That's not me saying anything. It's it, that'll be. I'll say, let, we'll just punt the ball. We'll do it some other time. So it came with clients. It came with looking at strategies. Where you know the report I really need to see. We can't get that. Like I really need to see it. I'm like you know what? That's fine. I don't need to see it anymore. Why not? Because I'm, I'm not considering you. If it's this hard to get the right number, and so every decision I've made is is been that kind of open. And I believe that things are better for everybody. Um, and I can tell you. Everything's, I mean, business has never been better, bigger. I've never been bigger. Um, now I'm still five, four, but you know, the business has never, I've never been in, in as many magazines I've been in lately. Um, it's funny. And I, you know, this is a, you know, I have to now watch what I say. So I was asked to do a live after the bell for, um, wasn't Bloomberg, it was TD Ameritrade. So they have, you know, they have after the bell and the two guys in front of me were the stock jockeys. They were showing charts that kind of looked like that, that, you know, that, that artwork behind me. And I don't have any charts. And if they were to ask me about the stock market, I would say, get out. Like that would be my answer. <laughs> so I'm like, as I'm sitting there in the green room, I'm like, why am I here? And I was there to, to explain the positiveness of, of artificial intelligence and crypto and, and Bitcoin and crypto, not Bitcoin, but just the blockchain and how that's really going to help things get better, you know, help companies get more done with less people. If we're going to have less people, at least get the same amount of done. And my, my, um, my analogy when someone says, can you explain, you know, blockchain or Bitcoin or, you know, like, well, it adds, it adds scarcity to anything digital. So I have a picture of you that's revealing and you don't want to see it. 
you don't, you know, I can say I gave it back to you, but you don't know if it's also in my iCloud or if I sent it to my wife. I'll look what I saw Scott doing. So, you know, if it was on a blockchain, it would be once you bought it, it would be yours. So that's, you know, the other analogy I use is I have Eagles tickets. I'm a huge Eagles fan. Um, I have Eagles tickets and they're for sale. You want them and you don't know me and I don't know you. So we have to pay a third party. So I'm explaining this on, on, TV, on, on TV and I'm like, all right, so they're paying me 15, 15% because they have to vouch that I am me and I have the tickets. They're going to charge you 15 to vouch that you have the cash and you want the tickets. Well, a smart contract could do that automatically. I could just put in there, hey, I'm Fred, here's my tickets. You know, hey, Siri, find a good price for a ticket or something. And you can say, hey, Siri, if you can get me this Eagles game, let me know. Uh, and by the way, my Siri behind me is, is I think, buying tickets right now. I, I can hear it <laughs> saying something. I might have just bought Eagles tickets. I don't know. Um, so the, the reporter's like, oh, so you're saying Ticketmaster won't have a, a business in the future. I'm like, oh, shit. I didn't mean the short Ticketmaster on live TV. But I kind of just said that. And and I know there's someone somewhere working for Ticketmaster drinking their after you know after work beer, spitting it all over because I just completely blew up their – I hopefully they find something else to do. Right. Because if all they're going to do is is provide, you know – that service, it's not going to be needed. And title insurance isn't going to be needed in the future, which scares me because it's not just the, a business running out. It's an industry not needed. And that's the kind of, of shifts that I think will be uh, have some opportunities, um, but also will have, you, know, you have to think different and you have to think what's next. And probably what got you here isn't going to get you there. Right. The stock market has been great for 20 years. From 73 to 83, it was at 1,000. So just because we have this huge up and we might have a correction doesn't mean it's going to be followed by the other end of the roller coaster going back up. There have been times that it, it wasn't. And when you look at 1920 and and now that ended in the Great Depression, that's not a happy story. But you, know, you got to look at similarities. Um, there are the things that I think, you know, believe in each other, believe in yourself and be open to things. because There's so many times that something's probably shown up that you just didn't notice that might have been your opportunity. Man, that's an awesome place to uh, end a podcast on opportunities. So, hey, you know, I, I've got a house in L.A. here. I got a house up in uh, Vegas. So if you're ever out in either of those two areas, we got to get together, smoke, Absolutely. A, smoke a Padron, do this live. Because I, I get the feeling we could just, well, you and I could talk about the jet, the debt jubilee for three hours. So oh, um, it would be fun. Anytime you come to the West Coast, man, I want to host you, buy you a nice cigar. I, I really appreciate your time, Fred. Like, this was super cool. And, uh, you know, maybe as more financial developments come out, uh, come out the next couple uh Next six, eight I'm months, happy to come back. We'll, uh, we'll talk. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. I appreciate it. I'll see you. Cool. Thanks, Fred.